I'm interested in uh, how cultures of urbanism interface with migration, how uh, the city refines, pluralizes, uh, accommodates uh, migration flows. And I, I want to talk today, I guess, in that context about these two, these two buildings. Uh, the, the first is a, uh, a building in the east end of London, uh, built specifically for Bangladeshi elders in about seven or eight years ago. The second is uh, construction by an architectural practice called Urbanus, uh, built just outside Guangzhou, should have been built in Shenzhen, uh, also for migrant workers. Uh, and uh, in the, that context, I suppose there are three things that I um, want to kind of interrogate a little bit. Issues of commensuration, issues around uh, mobilities and effective registers of belonging, and issues around uh, what I refer to here as urban imaginaries. Taking them in reverse order, I guess that what, what I'm trying to tease out in this paper, and I'll, I'll run through stuff and maybe, depending on speed and time, you know, just read a couple of bits, but jump through most of the rest indicatively. What um, I'm interested in doing is thinking about how certain kinds of technocratic imagination either embrace the processes of migration to the city, accommodate it, anticipate it, or, or, or do not do so. The sense in which, I suppose, if I was looking for an, an equivalent, um, there, there is, if you know one of Paul Ravenoff's early books, French Modern, he had that sense of how a middling modernism actually envisaged a certain kind of notion of the, the, the social. In fact, he, he argued, actually, in that book, that uh, a, a French urbanism uh, was a, a way in which the social uh, began to embrace everything. It had no external to it. Um, it was a way in which the, 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 the city mediated uh, our imagination of the, the future social. Um, the, the notion of, of mobility being straightforwardly, I guess, about the ways in which if we think about the movement not so much between nations as between places, the arrival in the city actually challenges how we come to think about very basic issues of rights, but also how we think about the field, the community, the site of belonging. It's long been noticed that the, uh, the arrival in cities of migrations from many different destinations creates in the 21st century situations of uh, super diversity or marked diversity which uh, begin to challenge some of the nostrums of some both old anthropological traditions and old ways of thinking about race and ethnicity. And thirdly, this notion of commensuration that unlike that notion of Rabinoff where the social begins to embrace everything, I'm interested in how we mark the borderlines between uh, the internal and the external, between the economic and the social. We know from uh, Durkheim that the moment of framing that creates an external is always problematic. And we know from literatures around the externalities that uh, there is always a sense of spillover between the economic and the social, and, and almost an inability to try and contain in simple compartments, that which is economic from that which is, which is social. And what I suppose I'm interested in doing is, is thinking about how we, we actually make commensurable those regimes of value and worth that sometimes appear incommensurable. And I'll try and expand on that a little bit. I'm just going to rattle through a little bit of context just to give you a, a sense of uh, where, where the paper's coming from, I guess, which is a, a, a generic move to the city which uh, is uh, characterised as much of the world. Um, I won't go through the whole uh, PowerPoint, but one of the clichés of our time is that the globe has become urban. The scale of urbanisation that is prompted by migration is phenomenal. Uh, if you look at just a single figure, it's about 350 million people are currently moving to the cities of China, although it's sometimes by the redefinition of what is urban, the redrawing of boundaries. But by 2030, there'll be about a billion people living in uh, Chinese cities. Uh, but likewise, if you look in uh, globally, you see patterns like this, which we could dwell on, but basically show that the, the percentage of populations that hit 50% urban are rapidly going up and up, not only in the global south, in the rising powers, the places like India and China, but 
continuing concentrations in Europe and, and North America. And I suppose that the challenge, uh, the, the challenge of migration is partly about how we think uh, cities can accommodate these enormous flows of people which generate their own forms of counteraction. We know that the, in economic terms the externalities of migration, the unintended consequences of migration, are realised at different scales geographically to the economic benefits. We know that very straightforwardly in economic terms, the, the, the economic benefits of flows of labour accrue at the geographical scale of the labour market or the nation. The, the welfare externalities, the unintended consequences, the unintended costs of, of migration in terms of things like family reproduction, education, welfare costs, tend to be realised at the geographical scale of the, of the, of the, the neighbourhood. And we know that across the world we see various forms of antagonism, just some minor examples on the slide from China, the reaction, the characterization of movement from uh, the, the, the mainland to Hong Kong is a, a movement of locusts, the uh, events in Maharashtra under Raj Thackeray's uh, populist politics against Bihari movement to, the, uh, to, to Mumbai, the sorts of Islamophobia we see in everyday parts of northern Europe. So we know there are populist reactions to migrations alongside uh, the, the phenomenal scale of what, what is to come. And we know that in the, the literatures, part of what is implicit in, uh, actually it's explicit in the paper, but implicit really in what I'm trying to say, is to disrupt a sense that we can think through these urban logics in ways that separate out the dynamics of cities of the global north from those of the, glo the global south. And I want to try and argue that there are continuities and lessons that, that cross those experiences that we, uh, if, you, if you look at the scale of movement to the, the cities in, in South Africa, at the time of uh, the collapse of apartheid, the, the first uh, ANC government came in promising uh, 1.4 million uh, new houses. They delivered over 20 years about 2.3 million new houses in the cities and there's now a demand for 2.3 million. So the, 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 the need to uh, adapt uh, the to this new demand is phenomenal caro. Uh, at one stage just a few years ago, a population of about 17 million had about 11 million uh, in <coughs> informal settlement in situations where their tenure was uncertain, where status was uncertain, uh, and where the, the right to the city was if you like, fragile. Famously, in many cities across the world, in kind of World Bank finance programs, you find uh, re uh, redevelopment programs that variously try to formalize the arrival of, of the migrant presence, formalize it through uh, turning squats and shanty towns into uh, uh, tenured and titled forms of, forms of settlement. Uh, this frequently is identified with forms of displacement. So if you look at what's happened in Istanbul in the last five, ten years, you find parts of the city reconfiguring as the geopolitics of Turkey begins to look southwards and westwards as much as northwards and eastwards. And small neighbourhoods are restructured according to those logics, so that the act of formalising property rights, formalising those areas which have been occupied by squatting and uh, people moving into the city, quite often is accompanied by a highly contentious process of uh, dispersal and removal of people. Santiago saw, at the time of the military, military rule, something like 200,000, this, this diagram, which is a, a PhD student of mine, uh, diagram of the, some of the, the, re, the removals and resettlements that took place during the, uh, the junta years in, uh, in, in Chile, uh, where what was lauded as the upgrading of migrant settlement by providing social housing was accompanied by taking uh, squats and shanty towns out of the centre of Santiago and reproducing them at the per periphery. So the access to formal, formal tenure and housing rights uh, was accompanied by the marginalisation of those same migrant, migrant communities. And, and likewise, even if you look at cities like London, where we might think these things would be different, in the, in the 1970s and 1980s, the, the, the Bangladeshi population that I'm going to be referring to later were frequently denied access to forms of social housing that was translated into a significant squatting movement so you had organisations like Spitalfields Housing Association that basically occupied uh, uh, the uh, unused or um, poor condition housing in various parts of East London that was gradually formalised and recognised as they became uh, a social housing provider uh, specifically for that, that, that migrant community. 
but we've seen in London continued expansion so that even, even now, if you look at the most recent figures in, in London uh, where the, the homeless uh, totals are something like, I think, uh, in 2010, something like 355,000 households, the equivalent of about 880,000 people on the waiting lists of, of uh, the, the local authorities in, in London alone. This disproportionately affects some groups over others, and I'm just going to develop that a little bit in, in the talk. But the ways in which this tends to be discussed in a lot of the academic literature is uh, variously through uh, discussions of... Uh, the rights of migrants, so particularly developing Arendt's notion of the right to have rights. The right to adequate or basic accommodation is one of the, fun the elements of the Declaration of Human Rights. Um, and some of the approaches that you find in NGOs like uh, Habitat for Humanity or uh, Amnesty, or in some of the work that goes on in the University of Oxford, likewise, tends to try to base uh, some of the analytic work on the rights of new arrivals in the city to be accommodated within the city, within the city itself. Um, equally, we find in the University of Oxford uh, work by um, people like Tony Venables and Paul Collier who try to argue that what is needed is uh, a, a new uh, understanding of, of housing supply that tries to take on board uh, the, the, effectively the costs of housing, the need to clarify, and importantly I guess for the rest of the discussion, the need to clarify property rights, uh, lower uh, uh, the barriers of regulation, and increase supply through institutionalizing uh, new market mechanisms within uh, the, the developing world. An alternative uh, approach is just uh, to kind of wrap up the introductory session where there is a, a long-standing anthropological tradition that has tried to, if you like, engage with the ways in which these contradictions of massive flows of people uh, sit alongside troubled uh, forms of city economic development through the appearance of informal, informal pr processes and patterns of settlement. Scot uh, scholars looking at, for example, in Locuto, uh, an anthropological, um, it was a fantastic anthropological monograph on the ways in which um, formal uh, tribal uh, uh, hierarchies are translated into forms of allocation, regulation and rule within the shanty towns themselves. Work of people like Ravi Sundaram at Sarai uh, in a book called Pirate Modernities that tries to think about how informalities structure some of the emergent cities of, of South Asia and India, or Abdul Malik Simon, whose book for the city yet to come does similarly in, in parts, parts of Africa. But I suppose these, these approaches are, are all, in, in a sense, share a certain sense of. Um, a difficulty of reconciling some of the academic traditions that they're bringing together. And what, what I want to do is just run you through uh, some very quick snapshots of things happening in uh, London and Shenzhen in the context of mi migration, where what I want to try to argue is that we need to think about the ways in which uh, institutions, professions uh, that uh, are Design, designing the city for the future uh, migrations uh, are creating certain kinds of expertise that make some things possible and other things in, invisible. And I'll expand on that by really just talking you through a couple of uh, cases very quickly from uh, the east end of London and then uh, the city of Shenzhen before trying to talk about how we might explore these uh, a, a little more in terms of are sort of described as the cultures, the cultures of urbanism. The, the east end of London in Tower Hamlets is one of those, you can see, where the expansion of population is in between 2001 and 2011. It was actually the largest proportion of expansion of any local authority uh, in the United Kingdom, an increase of population of about 28%. You have, sorry, figures don't show very well, but that's about 24,000 people on the housing waiting list, equivalent to actually about 24% of the total population as as is right now. There's some problems with these statistics, but the, the fact is that the, the, demand, for, uh, the demand for housing is, 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 is pronounced. Uh, so how scarce public goods, public housing is allocated, becomes extremely contentious. As I say, very crudely put, to jump you through a, a history of 25, 30 years in 
two or three minutes, the pattern that you find from the, uh, the migration of people to the east end of London, which peaks in the late 1960s and early 1970s, is what you find is a period of time when there is initially exclusion of uh, Bangladeshis from the social housing stock, the, 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 the houses rented to the public at subsidised rates by local government through pro processes of just overt racism, people were turned away. Uh, this was gradually campaigned against and people began to get some access that was then informally policed by some areas that were safe, some areas were unsafe. There was a long-standing record of racial attacks in some areas and not others. So you had over-concentration in areas of safety and places like the Isle of Dogs, Bow, were seen as unsafe. And so there were some estates where it was safe to go, other estates where it was, it was not safe to go. But also... Over time, through political engagement, there was not only the squatting movement that I described earlier on, where uh, uh, small groups of young men mostly decided to go and take possession of uh, vacant flats or vacant properties, but also a recognition of the processes of discrimination that produced an increasingly Weberian bureaucratization of the allocation of housing according to social need. So that from the 1980s through to the late 2000s, what one finds progressively is that the proportion of uh, people of Bangladeshi background, both people who have arrived from Bangladesh in the 60s and 70s and their, their children, get access to the, to the housing stock. But housing becomes a pronounced uh, uh, area of, of conflict, so much so that at various times in the 1990s, uh, not only is that com has that conflict become violent with forms of high-profile racial attacks and racial murders on some estates where, which are normally interpreted as a, a residual uh, local community trying to keep the, the migrant community away from that social housing <coughs> stock. But also along, alongside that, you find the emergence of institutional measures, such as a, a policy that was known as uh, a sons and daughters policy, whereby the, the local authority extended to um, uh, people who were sons and daughters of uh, those who were born in the East End of London, a privileged access to the scarce public good of, of, of housing in, in, in the inner city. Uh, the sons and daughters policies run by the, the Liberal Democratic Party in the 1990s were actually deemed uh, illegal eventually in court about three or four years after they, they'd been introduced because they discriminated against uh, minority groups who were less likely to obviously have been born in, in that part of London. But very straightforwardly, what um, I just give you a sense of the landscape a little bit. What um, emerges uh, after a period of time is that as that migrant community gains access to the social housing stock, then the numbers begin to go up. So much so that by if you reel the, the clock forward very rapidly to about 2005, a uh, <coughs> A book, the, the New East End, by Kate Gavron, an uh, anthropologist, Jeff Dench, and Michael Young, comes out with a very strong message saying that what has happened is that uh, due to the pernicious influence of liberal elites who have now taken control of local state and the allocation process, what you have had is that the, the this rationing of this scarce public good, housing, has been defined more by processes of need than by processes of membership or queuing. What they mean by that is that they make an argument that the construction of decent homes, homes for those that need them in situations where there is demand that exceeds supply, is a product of the post-war settlement, a product of the post-1945 rebuilding of London. And the argument that, that, that's made in this volume that has resonated very kind of strongly in the public domain is, is that what should occur is basically an overt discrimination in favour of, of one set of moral categories, those people who have queued longest for housing, over and above the definition of another set of moral categories, those people who might need that social housing most. So this is a complicated argument which we haven't got time to go into. But the point that I want you to kind of draw from this is that um, the, the argument that is made is that what is needed in and we can talk about the, the validity of these various subject positions, is that the, the white working class of East London itself is a problematic category because if you look at it historically, it tends to crumble a little bit when you see the Jewish tradition, the Irish tradition. We haven't got time for that today. So these are migrant histories that go back 
many, many generations, that, that when we're talking about the scarce public good of accommodation in the city, the way in which the city can uh, ex- uh, accommodate these flows of people, then there are some difficult moral choices between the allocation of a scarce public good against a, a measure of social need, i.e. when people present themselves as homeless, with two or three children as homeless, uh, and that is or is not prioritised against a measure of somebody who has been waiting on the queue for the housing list for 10, 15 years, but maybe sleeping on their mum or dad's sofa, for example. And, and these categories of, if you like, the, deser- the more deserving or the less deserving poor create, if you like, um, difficult moral debates, but also set, the, set, the, set up a, a more general picture about, if you like, incommensurable sorts of goods that we can, we can accommodate. Ironically, but by the time you get another 10 years down the line, uh, as migrant minorities become migrant majorities, uh, there is a, a, a return to a, a promotion by some of the Bangladeshi community of housing for sons and daughters, because now you're two generations on. Sons and daughters of people who live in East End, when the new migrant minorities are Poles and Lithuanians and Russians, the sons and daughters tend to be the Bangladeshis rather than the, 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 the new migrants. The point that um, I want to make is that what, what we have at stake here is, is different, notions of, different notions of public good. If we flip, just to, seemingly strangely, to, to the city of Shenzhen, <coughs> Uh, which has grown extraordinarily uh, rapidly, where a population of just 390,000 in 1979 is now a population of about, depending on, again, on where you draw the boundaries of the, the metropolitan area, but somewhere between 8 and 15, eight, eight, 15 million, um, where the, the migrant population, the people who have moved to the, the cities, tend to be uh, overwhelmingly, about 80%, concentrated in the areas known as the Chongzhongshan, the, the villages in, 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 in the city. Now Shenzhen, as, it, as in most of China, is characterized by significant distinctions, and again I'll simplify in terms of time, significant distinctions in property rights between rural areas and uh, the, the urban areas. In, in the, the cities, the metropolitan areas, the property rights are uh, characterized by um, an ability to purchase some uh, some property rights, but not others. So you, you buy use rights for 50 or 70 years, effectively a form of, form of leasehold. Rural property rights, again, are nuanced uh, uh, across the country, but have a more straightforward element of, uh, of sale and, and, and ownership tied to them. What that means is that, as, as you find in Guangzhou, in Beijing, in Shanghai, is that as the city expands geographically, it tends to jump around areas of old villages. So you have metropolitan property rights, but inside the cities you have areas which at various times, sometimes erased through political intervention, you have old rural rights within cities, old rural property rights within cities that contain, um, uh, that that are largely defined by metropolitan property rights. This becomes important when we think of flows of migration to the city because what happens in cities like Shenzhen is the reason that that the migrant population are 80% concentrated in the, the, the Chongjinsuan is that the, uh, the, the villages uh, tend to be uh, run the, by Jiuwei that work as joint stock companies. So you'll have a, an individual joint stock company that owns parts of the village, uh, that rents out sometimes at uh, fairly uh, high levels of, uh, of rent relatively, uh, to, uh, to income, very small rooms, back rooms, individual rooms, what are sometimes known as the Wushu Fung, the, the handshake apartments where uh, you can reach out across the windows to shake the hand of uh, the, 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 new, uh, the, the new arrival from, uh, from across the way. So these, these images are actually taken to Jasha, which uh, Columbia Architecture Department claims is the, the, uh, the most dense settlement on the planet outside, uh, the, uh, outside Gaza. I'm not quite sure how true that, how true that is, but that you have a level of density which is, which is phenomenal. Um, and the, the, the simple point I, I just want to make it, I mean, uh, is that these uh, villages and cities, the Chongjinsuan, that there is a, a discourse around them where which in mainstream 
policy uh, discussion in, in Shenzhen, they're seen as undesirable. They represent, uh, in some ways, uh, both forms of exploitation of migrant workers. They are frequently irregular in terms of planning, height, density, those sorts of land use regulations. Uh, but there's an architectural discourse that's um, become quite popular that tends to sort of valorise the, the, these as, as, forms of, as forms of urbanism that, that work. Uh, they are appropriated in all sorts of ways creatively, and the, the actual Chongjun Suen uh, themselves, uh, where, as they say, the villages grow real estate instead of crops. Uh, in, in Shenzhen, you have these extraordinary uh, concentrations of specialism, such as in Dafin, where they... Uh, a Hong Kong entrepreneur brought in a, uh, a, paint, a paint workshop where they now kind of mass produce oil paintings, so much so that you can, in Dufferin, you can buy a, a crate of Picassos. Or a, uh, and if you've been to almost any, uh, any hotel in, in the West, you'll find uh, on your wall the, the replication of something that has been hand-produced hand on a... Com if you like, on a conveyor belt of, 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 of paintings. Uh, the, the, the joint stock company made so much money that Dafen uh, actually literally uprooted and created Dafen Jinchun, the, the, new, the new village just down the road where everyone lives in very upmarket, uh, upmarket flats, the, uh, or I mean 150 metre apartments with a basketball court, a swimming pool, and so on. Extraordinary place which I've visited and interviewed some of the people there. The, these, these kind of forms of city, though, Work and again to, to cut the, uh, the the story short enough for the to get to the end in time for the discussion. Work functionally for the city in terms of integration. There's a scholar that talks about the facility of the city to work as integration <coughs> machines. The the the, the Chungjunsuen are incredibly adaptable. So Jasha, that we show you the slides of, was formerly the the source of uh, the site of enormous. Um, concentrations of, of mass manual labor. It's sort of upmarket up gentrified. As Shenzhen has moved up the value chain, uh, it's increasingly become the site where young professionals buy in and actually rent out two or three rooms and not, not through walls. Uh, and the, the joint stock companies still make their money, but this, it works effectively, and I'd say this without any kind of ethical intimation to it, it, it works uh, functionally as, uh, if, if you like, uh, a precondition for the, what's known in vernacular as Shenzhen speed. The speed of Shenzhen to expand over such a short period of time has depended both on this kind of phenomenal pace of accommodation of flows of people, but that integration is precisely at uh, a, a level, a form, of uh, you know, quite pronounced secondary status. So the integration of these vast new flows of people is functionally effective. It works partly through property rights that are uh, ambiguous, as uh, Peter Ho have, have argued that there's a sense in which the, the ambiguity, the ambivalence of the property rights, contrary to neoclassical economic logic, is actually quite helpful in bringing to, oiling the machine, making, making things work in a particular way. What I think that, that means is that to get to the, um, really the, the, the second part of, of the talk, that there's a sense in, in which we can't simply understand migration cultures as, uh, if you like, uh, purely functions of uh, the, the, the sources of origin. The, the, the villages of Select are translated into the village politics of the East End of London but they are mediated by um, the forms of status, forms of access to labour markets, access to dwelling, access to housing. In the same way as uh, Lao Jia, uh, where you come from in the, the rural migrations to, to Shenzhen, uh, are likewise structured by the complexities of what has changed a great deal in the last 15, 20 years, but the hukou mechanism whereby uh, your access to welfare is partly regulated, the fact that still today, in 2010-11, in, in many parts of Shenzhen, uh, you would have to pay for your kids' education locally, but if you educate them at home, uh, they're free, so you have a separation of families, you have a circularity to the migration, you have a connection between home place and Shenzhen itself that is sustained. So we know that part of the ways in which Shenzhen works is through the welfare externalities, the costs of migration are displaced geographically. They're displaced onto the rural, the rural areas them, themselves. And so we, the way we come to think about both the cultures of the migrants themselves, but also the construction of the city, 
is one where we might think about something slightly more combinatory in terms of how the material, the materialities of everyday life comes together with political status, comes together with mark, markers of ethnicity. So we might actually think slightly more about the urban context which either facilitates integration of these massive migrations or, or, or doesn't, doesn't do so. As I say, it's so far, in a way, so kind of slightly sloppily Latourian, for those of you who are kind of interested in such as the notion that the social is straightforwardly delineated is, is kind of not uh, easily amenable to empirical in inspection in, in, in some ways, which I won't develop too much right now. But what I do um, want to suggest is in the, the final parts of the paper, the second half of the paper, is that... Um, <coughs> These combinations of status, dwelling, and, and culture um, might actually uh, be uh, more easily understood if we map them alongside the working of the city itself, the coding of the, of the city. And one way into this, I want to suggest, is through, through the discipline of architecture. And in, in a sense, part of what I'm trying to argue here is, is, is a kind of just a signal because I've got time to go into is it is a slightly different debate about how um, different kinds of professional expertise valued make visible make possible the city in ways that are uh, significantly different one from another. There's a different project that I'm trying to do working between architects and planners where one of my colleagues who's an architectural theorist makes the argument that. Uh, the the the, the, uh, the basic epistemological ways in which the architect makes the city visible is very different from that of the land use planner. So one should never think of a of a, of a plan as being something to be realised, to be built out. It is instead, if you like, a, a, an intervention in an argument about how we might think about the propensity of the city. Uh, if we think about François Julien talks about the propensity of things, the possibility of what the city might become. This is made real, made visible, very differently in languages of neoclassical economics that measures the value of land from the visions of the architecture, which makes a certain kind of set of assumptions I'll come back to in a second, which is different, again, from land use zoning, which values the city in terms of the way the parts of the city contribute to a whole. If you think about architectural discourse, you have notions of you have notions of beauty, you have uh, notions of three-dimensionality that change how the city uh, might appear in uh, decades to come. You have a notion of duration, which in some kinds of architectural theory is, 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 is valued, the city that lasts forever. You have also the city of flux, so if you like, the, the city of Piranesi rather than the city of Rancoulhas, which the, the, a kind of notion of value that sees the city as ever-changing to be knocked down and rebuilt is very different from a, from a city that, that is valued precisely because of its longevity. These kinds of, uh, kinds of register, uh, even if you go back to Vitruvius, who's, um, uh, who had the, the sense of the, the solid, the useful, and the beautiful as being the three dimensions of architectural value, that they, I think, might take us somewhere slightly different uh, if we th in, in thinking about the, the, the city to come, the city that has, has a future. And the two, the two cases that I develop in the, the paper uh, a little bit more are those of a particular housing complex, the, the, the Tulum, uh, and uh, the um, social housing example in, in the East End. So the first is, as I say, was meant to take place in Shenzhen. It was uh, Abanus, a practice that we've been working with uh, on the project that um, was mentioned earlier on. We've been working with this particular architectural practice for about five years. So we've seen this, uh, this development come through its kind of thought stage, design stage, and re realization. And one of my colleagues um, uh, who's uh, worked with Coolhouse and Urbanus on uh, master plans for other projects, and we've done work with this particular practice uh, showing um, uh, art and uh, plans at uh, the Hong Kong and Shenzhen Biennale, both Hong Kong and, and Shenzhen. And, and what um, Urbanus have made a reputation around 
is the, the facility of kind of linking up uh, interesting communities. <laughs> Someone's on the switch. switch. <laughs> interesting community design to the imperatives of, 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 uh, of big money. And they worked in particular, one of the, one of the biggest uh, developers in, in, in China is uh, Vancouver, whose chief executive is a guy called uh, Wan Shu, who's a sort of slightly larger than life character who's kind of has a very high, had a very high public profile of climbed mountains, did lots of public good type things until he, he did make a slightly off-color comment about how much he was expected to donate to the earthquake a few years ago. His kind of popularity went, went, went down went down somewhat. But uh, Obama's designed Vanka's uh, corporate headquarters. And at one uh, time in the uh, about 2007-2008, uh, uh, when um, cohesion became increasingly a watchword of, of government, uh, uh, that's the right way of, um, uh, of phrasing it, was, uh, there was a sense in which Wanshu said it should be possible to accommodate the, the flows of people from the countryside by doing this commercially. You didn't need social interventions. And he challenged, uh, he said he would be able to uh, prove an example of this. And he uh, challenged Urbanus, as his favorite architectural practice, to develop uh, a form of housing that was high quality uh, and was uh, at the same time able to cover its own costs in terms of uh, its ability to accommodate migrant populations without uh, ripping them off in the same way as the, the folk in the, the handshake apartments. Uh, and what, uh, what occurred was that Urbanus developed this project, um, which was meant to be actually take place in uh, downtown Shenzhen or in Guangzhou, because of um, a lot of people locally didn't want uh, mig migrant housing in their, their neighborhood. There was actually a kind of a political push to keep the, the building out of the city. But the Tulu, the, the, which is this vernacular form that you see here, is kind of realized in its um, 21st century form by this development in just outside Guangzhou. It's just to give you a sense of the, of the building itself. <laughs> the rooms are tiny still, so you have um, something uh, like... Uh, 50 square foot apartments uh, to accommodate five people, uh, two rooms and a, and a kitchen dining room where for two couples and a single person. Uh, and the, again, the use of them tends to be fairly inventive. But the the simple point in terms of time, I need to kind of jump through uh, this a little bit, is is that what has what has occurred is a set of architectural nostrums have been brought to bear. So the thing does add up financially. Actually, it does cover its face. Um, but what that means is that it's actually, I think, this is quite a, quite a beautiful construction. So it's, uh, it's low quality in some places to, to save money. But of course, it was targeted at uh, not just the Nomingong, but uh, the migrant workers more generally. And within months was seen as, in some ways, architecturally iconic. And so it became very popular with it. So you find these... You have um, a designer shop. You've got IT start. You've got this guy's South African who's lived there. You've got a, a load of, of IT startups have moved into the ground floors. So this this attempt to create uh, a a site for uh, migrant workers <coughs> creates this this object. I think an object of beauty, an object that has an architectural logic to it, an object that gets displayed. Uh, in, is curated in New York as being part of the answer to China's uh, um, uh, massive flows of people to the city, but has the unintended consequences of being almost immediately uh, upgraded in terms of who, who, who gets to, to, to live in the site. It's, well, the, the point I, I'm trying to make is, if you like, that the registers of, of, of value uh, begin to kind of grind into some fairly uh, extraordinary um, outcomes the moment the building, the building is open. In contrast, a couple of examples that, that I want to, to um, give from, from, from London also uh, draw on uh, two architectural practices. The first of these is Panoya and Prasad, who again I've worked with for about 10-15 years on a number of different projects, who, who were at one stage asked to try and design uh, a centre for, uh, center for racial har uh, harassment that was uh, consciously designed around the metaphor of the, the flying carpet. 
that rather than think of the city as a landscape through which people were hidden and disguised, what Panara Prasad tried to do was actually create a structure <coughs> whereby those that were harassed, migrant communities who'd been attacked in London, could instead occupy a signature building that looked down upon the city. The politics of visibility were, in a sense, uh, to be inverted through the design of the, the structure itself. It actually was never quite, quite realised, but it was, if you like, in tune with a debate around a particular kind of um, politics of, uh, politics of recognition, if you like. The second building is the structure that we started out with, which is a, a, a specific daycare centre on the, 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 Tarling, the Tarling Estate uh, in East London. Uh, Sonali, um, in my Bangalore, I get mixed up, but um, I used to play for a football team called Sonali Teeth, which means golden oldies. So I think Sonali so is the golden rather than the old, oldies. I think. But, um, the... Uh, <coughs> The, the, the background to this daycare centre was in one sense very straightforward. That as migrant communities arrive in, in, in London and become old, there is a straightforward demographic reason for why they, they were increasingly um, not represented in the old people's homes that were present in the, the British welfare state. Uh, old people's homes tended to have a lot of alcohol, a lot of kind of old type of, like, events tied to a certain version of East End culture. And so as part of an alternative, I was actually involved in making this, this possible, we created a, an, old, an old folks' um, home that was specifically linked into the cultural needs of a migrant minority community. In other words, uh, a migrant minority community that were largely practicing, uh, practicing Muslims, so there were faith-based uh, uh, adaptations such as um, ablution facilities, uh, prayer rooms, uh, dietary um, uh, kind of regulations about the kind of food that was served. And this was seen as, on one level, very, very popular. It, over time, actually quite rapidly, became both very popular amongst the Bangladeshi elderly, but also at the same time was uh, denounced, by, denounced by David Davis <coughs> when um, uh, Shadow Home Secretary as being a form of cultural apartheid. That what was going on was that, that there was a creation of a, a particular social facility that was open only to migrant minorities. The politics of recognition was being valorized over and above, if you like, the politics of distribution of equal access in the rhetoric of the time. But also, equally, in equally complicated fashion, this, this particular facility is shaped out of the landscape of... Uh, the landscape of the city itself. It was, it was made possible by a land deal that densified the land and traded off some of the public, public land and reinvested it. What that meant, right, if you look at this, it was a very, very run-down estate, a very grim estate where, if you go back historically to the 1970s, 1980s, the average life expectancy on this estate uh, of an adult male was um, 64 uh, in contrast with almost 10 years more than that for the average across London as a whole. But the estate was refurbished, but this tower here is basically a, a, a block of flats. The estate was refurbished, the money from the block of flats paid for the refurbishment of the, of, of the housing. It also paid for the housing association, an NGO, to run, uh, to run the facility. Um, that that was uh, the, the old folks' home. So what becomes controversial, of course, is you get a hybrid form. The assemblage that is, that is going on here is, is a combination of planning law, land deal, access rights. It is, if you like, a, a, a combination of material forms, welfare regulations, and migrant cultures. You have a facility which becomes very popular with Bangladeshi elderly. At the same time, that the... the the, it is seen as uh, a controversial project in which the land mass, it, which was uh, relatively low density, becomes higher density by knocking down some buildings, building up others. By selling off others, you recycle the money. Um, but the recycling the money itself becomes controversial because what was there at one stage, uh, there was a, a campaign came up from some of the people uh, locally who decided that this, this represented what was an old shed before it was turned into kind of quite a nice facility, um, became 
uh, indicted as the, the kind of sell-off of the sell-off of local land. The point I'm trying to make um, in, in all of this is, um, and I'm going to just read you the, the, the conclusion to finish up. But what um, I suppose I'm, I'm trying to argue is that in the in the abstract, the, these moments of architecture um, become uh, quite useful in in a way that almost, I suppose, imitates the uh, a kind of Garfinkel experiment. Those of you who know the, the sociologist Harold Garfinkel argued that you understand the workings of a system by intervening in the system, and if you like, sticking a spoke in the wheels of the system. So as the system tries to reconstitute itself, in doing so, it reveals what is implicit in the rules and regulations of the, of the system itself. First of all, the, the role of architecture is instrumental in making us understand both the, if you like, the rules of the game in Shenzhen and, and uh, London. But I think more, more interestingly, it begins to reveal at a straightforward level some of the, if you like, the trade-offs that are, that are possible, the kinds of, um, whether we're talking about the incommensurable rationing of, of scarce public goods or whether we're thinking about how urban design and architectural form come, come together. But also, I think they re it reveals the deliberative processes by which the structure emerges or is never realized, the inclusions and exclusions that structure a city that is yet to come. The future's present, thus revealed, can highlight the contours and cartography of a migrant urbanism. Such thinking reveals the sometimes shaky settlement of the city and makes explicit <coughs> trade-offs of policy practice in relation to cities characterized by major flows of migration movement. The politics of presence uh, that acknowledge or shatter invisibility in Shenzhen as much as London, politics of recognition that challenges the universal in contexts where the commons of the city is less universal than we might think. Public goods marked by histories of exclusion and territories of self-interest. I think this compl the complex cartography um, actually lacks the forms of sovereign power that give the material substance to rights-based approaches to city change. What's slightly more developed in the paper is that I, I, I try to suggest that the uh, is greatly redemptive to like Habitat for Humanity or Amnesty to try and think about um, the appeal to the right to be housed. Uh, but that, uh, that right has a rhetorical hollowness to it unless it's thought through in the context of the forms of sovereign power that make accommodation possible. And I might develop that a bit more in discussion if we get a chance. But as Costas de Zinas has argued, the rhetoric of human rights seems to have triumphed because it can be adopted by left and right, the north and south, the state and the pulpit, the minister and the rebel. This is the characteristic that makes, the only makes it the only ideology in town. The ideology after the end of ideology is the ideology at the end of history. As a normative call to arms, La Dota La Vie is freighted with 1960s power, but in the zone of the city where neither natural law nor international law is in any meaningful sense enforceable, we need to understand the limits of uh, discourses of citizenship. It is not entirely without, without benefits. Rethinking the externalities of migration these unintended consequences, opens up an engagement with both neoclassical economics but also with the thinking about the languages of commensuration. The framings of the architect, the planner, and the real estate market are in part about trying to limit overflow. That sense, if you know the work of Tim Mitchell, where he's, he's tried to say um, that uh, the attempt to marketize Cairo doesn't work because the act of framing uh, never manages to secure an insight that is made calculable without the overflow providing an undermining of the inside, it's the inside itself. Um, in Tim Mitchell's work, he argues that frames work most effectively when they can travel, as with defining externalities through markets, but these are invariably subject to breakdown. Indeed, as Marilyn Strathern has argued, uh, she, Marilyn Strathern has a piece where she engages with the work of Michelle Callon's uh, use of, of, of the, the frame. Callan, for those I'm sure who don't know his work, but part of his argument, Callan's work, is, is that this, uh, this framing of the economic from the social is about making the economic visible as an area that is to be performed. Uh, so the performativity of economics for Callan emerges from, he takes Durkheim actually like one stage further in his arguments, to argue that the economic is a form 
of, of rationality that is performed within certain frames. And uh, there is a strong new economic uh, sociology on that. But Marilyn Strathern uh, has kind of engaged with, with that work a few years ago when she suggested that this Goffman-esque sense of framing of the internal and external cannot be divorced from an architecture of ethical principles. <coughs> the effort to reduce overflow of externalities, she argues, is precisely part of the process of overflow itself. What she tries to argue for is, is what she calls an internal externality, where very, very crudely drawing on her um, ethnographic work from New Guinea, there's a sense in which she tries to, to argue that these forms of expertise that Calant uh, identifies the framings, that I was trying to suggest to you that the architecture provides one such, such framing, have an inside, uh, an internal externality, which is a, effectively a debate about the ethical. That's the way I read what, what Strathairn writes. But I also want to suggest that if um, for Strathairn, the internal externality opens up a territory of the ethical settlement. Perhaps the spatial metaphor of the city of flux is less the external externalities of the economists. Uh, if you, going back to where we, where we began with, with economics, the argument of the neoclassical neo economics is that by by, by pricing externalities, we actually create the, the, the optimal uh, distribution of uh, resources. I just want to come back to that in just a, just a second. But in Strathern's argument, there is, through the spatial, the, the spatial matter of the city of uh, flux is less the external externalities of the economists or the internal externalities of Strathern as much as... <laughs> Almost, it's almost uh, the Mobius script of the city that is yet to come. Always emergence, always a propensity, repeating itself within ways and forms that are highly contingent. In the context of the interplay between migrant urbanism and markets, either the Western-style markets of contemporary London or the socialist markets of contemporary Shenzhen, we might revise Ronald Coase's nostrum that externalities are eliminated by effective pricing mechanisms. Coase famously went upstairs in Chicago, where he works as the economist, went upstairs to the Department of Law and said, what, what we will do as, the, as economists is, is rationalize uh, prices, so the unintended consequences of economic activity by being priced can create a diminution of the power or need for law to adjudicate between different, different uh, uh, measures of, of external, externalities costs. And so I suppose what, what, what in part is the argument here is that if we begin to think of a different kind of framing of externalities, if we actually understand that there are different regimes of value and worth tied, tied into different kinds of expertise, then not only do we take Strathern's insertion of the ethical into a de debate about the internal and the external, but we also potentially turn the de debate about law and economics on its head. Ronald Coase developed the Law and Economic School of Economic Theory on the back of the economic logic of the pricing mechanisms displacing law. In response, we might alternatively consider how jurisprudence might frame neoclassical pricing, how aesthetics might engage with zoning, and how externalities of long-term sustainability sit alongside the cognitive logics of the deliberative moment. 